Okay, so <clears throat> get a brief uh, break there. So uh, you spend it with our Lord, which is He's always good company, and He Himself, you know, just in the mystery of of what is there. There's a mystery that is so far beyond our real understanding. And it it's so amazing and so wonderful that we have that. And that is part of what St. John the Cross uh, keeps bringing us back to is, is these mysteries of God, of, of us really truly knowing and understanding them in that, in that deep and profound way. And, and how so often that that is extremely difficult for us because we just have a, a limited way of how we can see and understand these things. And so that is what the, the dark night is, it is a gift that he's given to us to help us to see the reality that is there, to see it as it really is. You know, I had a bishop that told me at the passing away of my mom, he, he said, well, now your mom is seeing this on the other side. She's seeing it as it really is. Because uh, the communion of saints joins us for every mass. And they are seeing that presence of Jesus in a way that we have we, we can't even understand and know. But we are in heaven. In heaven, we're going to see that. And when we join the community of saints and we are present at the masses around the world, we're going to see that in, in such a fantastic way. But it is a knowing that's beyond knowing. And the only way to, to really get even close to that in this life is through that dark night of the soul. So a reminder that St. John of the Cross, he, he gives us an invitation to us. He doesn't say, if you don't achieve the dark night of the soul in your life, that, that somehow you've never loved God, that somehow you've never really lived your faith, that somehow you, you are not uh, a, a faithful follower of Jesus. He wouldn't say that. What he's saying is, I'm offering this as a means and a way to be able to get to an even deeper reality, a deeper experience of God for those who choose to do this. And so he's, he's our teacher and our guide in this, and he's inviting us, but he also is going to remind us to be patient. He's going to remind us that this can take... Um, Quite a long time for some people, and that in the meantime, uh, to continue to work with the things that that you do have, that you uh, have within your spiritual life, that are bearing fruit, that are drawing you closer to Jesus, that are that are helping you move along that path. And of course, one of the main ways is meditative prayer. And so he says, stay with that and remain with that as long as that is necessary. And he says, for some people, that, that, that may be years that they stay with that meditative prayer until they finally reach that, that point where they say, I'm, I'm willing now to take that next step. And I want to go into that contemplative prayer. Um, but he says, we must be prepared for that in a good way or else what we end up doing is, is we, we kind of, we, we basically we jump off the high dive before we learn how to swim. And how's that going to end? Um, with the lifeguard coming and rescuing us. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're ready to, to take that leap of faith and when we enter into that dark night. So he's going to give us all the necessary insights and tools to do that. <clears throat> and so that's really what he's presenting to us. So I'm sure everyone understands that, you know, you're not less of a Catholic, you're not less of a, of a follower of Jesus if you don't embrace this dark night of the soul. Um, 
he's he's not saying that at all. He's he's basically saying this is for those for when the Holy Spirit it's once again that Holy Spirit, he will let you know when you're prepared and ready, and he'll be the one that prompts you to do that. And and so always be attentive listening to that Holy Spirit because he's gonna guide you in this. Um, if we just kind of try to figure it out on our own. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people is they pick up St. John of the Cross, they start reading them because they've heard good things about them. And then they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, he, he, what, what's, what's, what, it, you know, deny the world, give up all the sensory things. And they just get to where they're just so turned off by that because they don't understand it. And, and they don't um, really understand where it all leads. And so that's why they say, okay, you know, back on the shelf you go or, you know, back to Amazon, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, and so <clears throat> one of the things that he uh, says to us, just briefly summarizing, sum, summarizing from the, the previous talk, the councils for conquering the appetites, he says, we have to have a habitual desire to imitate Christ in all your deeds. So study his life in order to imitate it. And what better way than the four gospels? Get to know those four gospels. Get to know them inside and out. Get to know every single story in them. Get to know and memorize the sayings of Jesus in those gospels. And we will begin to imitate him. We will begin to grow in this just that alone, St. John of the Cross says, will get us far along the path. And so the second, he says, renounce and remain empty of any sensory satisfaction. That is not purely for the honor and glory of God. So Jesus' life was the will of the Father. If you read the Gospels, one thing you will get clearly from the Gospels as you're reading them over and over again, is Jesus is constantly talking about doing the will of my Father, doing the will of my Father, doing the will of my Father. Everything is about doing the Father's will. Jesus does nothing that is separate from his Father's will. And that's the same for you and I, that we desire to do everything according to the Father's will. And that means that we need to enter into that understanding that everything that we do uh, should be directed to the honor and glory of God. And if it isn't being directed to the honor and glory of God, then there's something in that that we need to recognize is not in the right place. It's not in the right order. It's, there's something that we need to change in that approach. So renounce or remain empty of any sensory satisfaction is not purely for the honor and glory of God. And then the third is many blessings flow from the harmony and tranquility of the four natural passions. That is joy, hope, fear, and sorrow. Okay, so that kind of summarizes from, from the last place that we had left off in the previous talk. And then... One of the things is, is that what we've been describing so far, according to St. John the Cross, is the active night of the senses, where we are actively cooperating with God's grace in ridding ourselves of inordinate desires, attachments, etc. Okay, so then I touch briefly on that second part, which is the passive. And so you have within this, you have the sensory, that's the active. And the sensory that's passive, and the spiritual that's active, and you have the spiritual that's passive. So remember, the active is what you and I do, cooperating with God's grace. So we actively uh, deal with these these sensory goods, um, and and basically. Allowing God to darken those, we're cooperating with that, and we actively ask God to darken the spiritual goods, so like the consolations, you know, we're cooperating with that. And then the passive, 
That is God working on the sensory. And that only happens after the active. And the same with the spiritual. Because the passive is God working now on those spiritual goods after we've done our part in the active. Okay. And then once we have all four of these, that's when you have the dark night of the soul. So that's that's the basic approach that St. John the Cross is taking. So right now we're looking at the passive of the sensory and just want to touch briefly on that because this is the section from the dark night of the soul. So that's this, that's the second separate book that St. John of the cross wrote. And he goes between the, the ascent of Mount Carmel over to the dark night of the soul. Then he goes back to the ascent of Mount Carmel. And then he goes back over to the dark night of the soul. And if I were to try to do an entire retreat on both of those books, uh, we, we would not, uh, be able to, to achieve that. So that is why I'm just going to touch uh, briefly on the passive part of this. Um, and then that same is going to apply to the spiritual later. So we won't have to go into that as much later with the spiritual, because once we understand it for the sensory, we'll understand it for the spiritual. Okay. So this passive night, remember I was talking before about the satellite falling to the earth. So we're no longer, it's no longer powered on its own. We're no longer powered on our own. We now surrender. We give up everything. We allow that darkness of, of our sensory. We allow that darkness of the spirit. And now God, he can pull us in. And that is where the passive night of the senses not only involves us becoming even more detached from sensual desires and pleasures, but also detachment from spiritual pleasures and delights. And these spiritual pleasures and delights are often experienced by seeing one's spiritual progress. As we become more and more detached from sensual things, this can then result in a spiritual pride, among other things. Pride is the tricky one in this, because as we make advancements, we, we see. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm living as... Uh, a, a person who's striving to live in that way that God has called me to, I'm seeing that I'm making real progress in that. And then I start to kind of get a little puffed up. I get kind of full of myself. You know, St. Paul, when he's writing to Corinthians, he's, he's basically saying to them, you're all puffed up. You're like strutting peacocks. Um, you think you have it all. You think you you think you are like the best Christians around and Paul has to kind of put them in their place. And he has to remind them that humility is the way to holiness. And so this is the thing that St. John will go back to again and again, the soul, if it is to continue to make real progress must be steeped in humility and not think too much of itself or delight that it is doing so much better than so many other souls that surround it. Now, this is, this is something that I've seen. Um, it's even something that I could say in my own life once in a while. You know, uh, I think Satan tries to put that there. You know, makes, tries to make us think like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just a little, just a little bit better than that person. Or, you know, look at that, that person over there and all the problems they're having in their life. And, you know, look at me and I'm doing so much better because... You know, I'm paying attention to God and I have God in my life and they don't. And so that's why their lives are all misery. And, you know, that, that whole thing of where we can get pulled in to looking at others and then comparing ourselves to others and, and not really even knowing or understanding others, but just getting caught up in that pride. And so he says, we've got to be very careful because as soon as we start making some progress in all of this, Guess what's going to show up? Pride. Pride is going to show up. It's going to, you are doing great. You have not only achieved the active of the sensory, now you're already working on the active of the spiritual. You are doing wonderful. 
you are so far ahead of probably everybody else in your parish right now. <laughs> and, you know, if, if just, you know, if you could just get to this, I mean, wow, you would just be on top of the world and, and all this. Satan is going to try. He's going to try to derail us because the farther along we get on this, the more Satan is afraid of us. Because the more that we're doing this, the less, the less power he has over us. If he doesn't have power over us on these things, can you imagine? He, he, he's then left with this. And then with this, there's only certain things that he can do with that. And we're going to get into some of that later. But the thing is, is humility is what's going to guard us against any of these things that are going to be coming from pride from within ourselves or or from Satan himself trying to derail us with that pride. And so humility, there's not holiness without it. If we want to be holy, we have to have humility. Humility is the virtue that all the other virtues are built on. Humility is the foundation, the bedrock of all the virtues. Pride, guess what it is the bedrock of? Sin. All sin is built on pride. All virtue is built on humility. If we walk that way of humility, then we're going to truly be guarded against any of the things that are going to try to derail us in this process. So the soul that does not seek after consolations has entered the passive night of the senses. Consolations are not bad in and of themselves. I like consolations. I like when God gives me consolations. It's nice. It's, you know, I, okay, God, I've been praying for four days. I haven't really felt anything. And then all of a sudden he gives me just a really nice, just experience from that last time of prayer that I just had with him. And that's kind of like an encouragement. It's, it's to remind me, keep going, keep entering more deeply into this. It, he gives that to us to encourage and help us. The problem comes in when we start depending on that. Okay, I just had that really good experience. Now I want it again. But then that God doesn't give it to me for maybe two months or three months. And he's going to see how I do with that. Am I going to keep praying? Am I going to keep trusting in him? Or am I going to think, because I don't have these consolations now, that, well, there's either something wrong in the way that I'm praying St. John of the Cross says, actually, it's probably more of our expectations of those consolations. We, we put too much on them now. We want them all the time. And now we're putting conditions on this. God, if I pray, if I spend a holy hour with you, then I have to get something from that. That's basically what we're saying when we say we want a consolation. Just spending time with you, spending an hour with you, Jesus. Well, that's not enough if I don't get some kind of feeling, really good feeling from that. If I just go away thinking, well, I've just spent an hour with you, but I don't really feel anything. I don't know what's going on, Lord. I just have a dryness. I just have kind of a disconnect. It doesn't seem like you're really there. You know, I was gazing at, at your son for a full hour, but I just don't know. I just don't know what's going on. And God's saying, because I'm bringing you to the next step, I'm actually saying you're mature enough now not to need consolation every time you spend time with my son. See, and that's what then makes us realize that prayer, that kind of prayer is so much more mature because now we just want to spend time with Jesus. We just want to be with him because it's good to be with him. And that's the only reason that we want to be with him. And whether we get any kind of kudos from that doesn't matter. See, that's where we start to recognize in the active of the spiritual, we're really starting to make that progress. But then here comes along Satan, right? <laughs> He's going to try to derail that, especially if we're spending time with Jesus in this way, which is one of, one of the best ways uh, that the church has. 
it's so wonderful to see once St. John Paul II really kind of brought this devotion back after the Second Vatican Council was kind of, you know, downplayed for a while. It was kind of dismissed. A lot of parishes stopped doing the, the 40 hours devotion and things like that. And then St. John Paul II gets elected Pope and he's like, this is going to be the center. This is going to be the center of our faith because everything flows from the Eucharist and everything flows back to it. And so we thank the Lord. You know, we just celebrated his feast day. Thank the Lord for such a, a wonderful, wonderful Pope who helped to bring back this devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist. So one important thing to note is that the passive night of the senses is that the soul is gradually moved from meditative, that is active prayer, to the con contemplative, that is passive prayer. So once again, talking about that passive prayer where God's the one that gets to work on our soul. We just are there. I love, it was from uh, Bishop Rickard many years ago. He and I were talking about prayer and we were talking about uh, the writings of, of, of one of the saints. And, and one of the things that the, that the saint said is, uh, he says, you know, when I would go to chapel, he said, uh, th there's this, this guy that, that, that saw this, this saint every day, you know, we go to church, you spend this time and he'd be, you know, in front of the tabernacle and just every day would be there and, and spend, spend long hours there at times. Finally, this guy asked him, you know, what, what is it? What is it? What is it that you do? Sometimes you're in there for hours. And he said, I look at him and he looks at me. And that, you know, that was wonderful. I mean, that, I mean, that changed my prayer from the moment that I heard it. I thought, that, that's it. <laughs> I look at him and he looks at me. And that's, that's all that needs to be. And so beautiful. So one of the things that we know is that we should allow the soul to remain in rest and quietude, even though it may seem obvious that we are doing nothing and wasting time. So St. John says, through patience and perseverance in prayer, we'll be doing a great deal without activity on our part. We must be content simply with a loving and peaceful attentiveness to God and to live without the concern, without the effort, without the desire to taste or feel him. So the mind does not understand, but the intellect and the will are drawing closer to God, as I mentioned earlier. So in the passive night of the senses, the soul possesses and retains more truly that excellent necessary virtue of self-knowledge, counting itself for nothing and having no satisfaction in itself because it sees that of itself it does not, it does and can do nothing. This diminished satisfaction with the self and the affliction it feels because it thinks that it is not serving God, God esteems more highly than all its former delights and all its good works. Isn't that amazing? God is more pleased with that soul that, that just sees, like, I don't, I don't really count for anything, Lord. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm doing anything. I'm just, I'm just here with you, but nothing seems to be happening, and yet I'm here, and I love you, and I'm just trying to be with you in this way, and I'm not getting any kind of consolations or affirmations or anything, but I'm just here. And God loves that. He absolutely loves that. You know, all those self-help books in the world will not get us to understand ourselves better than the passive night of the senses. In fact, most of those books, there, there are a few good ones out there, but most of them say things like, be your own person. Don't take no fill in the blank from anyone. <laughs> Assertive therapy, they call that. Uh, uh, you are just great as you are. No, you aren't. <laughs> Hate to burst your bubble, but none of us is just great as we are. We are all a work in progress. And with God's grace, 
we can get better. You are the one in charge of your life. No, we aren't. God's in charge. And anybody who doesn't know that's going to find out the hard way. So all of these, while well-meaning, are short-sighted, for they fail to recognize that until we can truly see ourselves for who we are in comparison with God and with God's understanding, we will never get to know ourselves and we will continue to wander lost through the world wondering who we really are. So once we have, with God's grace and help, mastered the dark night of the senses actively, and then further through the passive night of the senses, we are ready for the next step in the spiritual journey, and that is the dark night of the spirit. So we're going to look at the active part of that now. So St. John on the Cross begins book two with the second stanza of his poem on the dark night. It goes as follows, which we've been praying it. In darkness and secure by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace in darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. Book two is an explanation of this part of his poem. Do you know his, his poem? We have the, the, the eight stanzas to it, the ascent of Mount Carmel and the dark night of the soul, those two works are a commentary on those eight stanzas. Just think about that. There's, there's an amazing in-depth commentary on a poem. And that's why I'm having us <clears throat> pray it every time. This is one of those poems that I think as, especially if you like the Carmelite spirituality, it's one of those poems that you really should memorize and be able to pray spontaneously wherever you're at. When you're looking out at a beautiful sunset, pray that poem. You know, when you're experiencing uh, prayer and you're in a beautiful church, you know, pray that poem. It is, it is a wonderful prayer for us to, to have and to know in our hearts. So kind of reminds us back, I had a teacher, she was great. Boy, she worked us like, like nothing else. I'll tell you what, you went into her class and that 50 minutes was just solid work and your hand ached afterwards from all the writing. But she made us, she made us memorize. And that was a great thing. Still remember some of the things from that class that she made us memorize. And, uh, there's something good about that because you can carry it with you wherever you go. So the grace achieved in this next step of the dark night, Friar John says, is greater because of the greater hardship involved. So you thought the senses were, were difficult and hard to, to allow that, that darkness to occur. He says, well, you're going to find that spiritual is much harder. It's going to be much more challenging than, than this. Uh, so... He says, because of the greater hardship involved in which one must learn to lean on pure faith alone, the spiritual nudity of all sensory and immaterial things. So pure faith alone. So the spiritual ladder in the poem, so the stanza we just read by the spiritual ladder, he says, refers to this pure faith. Because in the words of John, all the rungs or articles of faith are secret to and hidden from both the senses and the intellect. And without the light of the senses and intellect, the soul went out beyond every natural and rational boundary to climb up the divine ladder of faith that leads up to and penetrates the deep things of God. So now, as we're praying that in the future, when we get to the secret ladder, no, that's pure faith. We're climbing that ladder where our senses are darkened, our intellect is darkened. And when that happens, we don't have our senses, we don't have our intellect. What do we, what do we have to rely on? Faith. That's it. That's the only thing left. There isn't anything else. So in the night of sense, there is some light because the intellect and reason can remain and suffer no blindness, but in the spiritual night, faith removes everything, both in the elect and the senses. Okay, so when we're when we're here, 
you know, he's saying that the, the intellect and reason, they, they, they are still kind of active. Um, but when they get here, that's when they go dark. So here, we're still using them, intellect and reason. Here, they're obscured. And why is that? Go back to remember, because our intellect, we can only think in a limited way about God. And if we're only thinking about a limit, in a limited way about God, then we can't really come to know and experience God in that unlimited way. That can only happen with faith taking us farther up that ladder. So one of the things that Friar John says is that there are three parts to the dark night. Okay, and I love, I love his descriptions of these. So twilight, that's when sensible objects begin to fade from sight. So you know that time of the day where you're looking across the street and you see something, maybe it's a cat or a raccoon or who knows what that is, right? That's when our senses are starting to fade. So that's this here, okay? So the active and passive night of the sense, then midnight is a time of pure darkness. What we're currently discussing, which involves the intellect and the reason going dark. So then that's these two together. That's midnight. And then a period right before dawn. So in which God supernaturally illumines the soul with the ray of his divine light. So right before that dawn appears, God illuminates us. And that's when we have then experienced the fruit, the dark night of the soul. So where are we at? High noon, broad daylight, uh, maybe a little bit into the evening, uh, but not quite twilight. So we kind of see where we're at and see, okay, Lord, um, where do I need to get to? to? To at least get to that twilight would be a good thing. So once again, reminding ourselves, be patient, begin to allow this to happen, to do our active part in this. Um, and to know, maybe it'll take us a while, but the more that we're learning that, the more that that's becoming habit, the more we're allowing God's grace to work in us, it's, it's going to get us eventually to that point of word that we're going to be ready for that next step. So Friar John says that this period of midnight can be compared to when the sun is shining brightly in the day and all other lights from candles are useless. The light of the sun overpowers the light of the candles. Isn't that an interesting description? Uh, so the midnight is like the brightest part of the day. We have these candles outside. What are the candles doing? They're doing nothing, right? Because the sunlight, it doesn't allow the candles to show any light because the sunlight overwhelms the light from the candles. So that's what he's saying happens at that midnight, that time of pure darkness, is that we are overwhelmed by God. It's, we're, we're completely dark in our senses and in the spiritual. We're completely dark because God has overwhelmed us by his, his, his presence. And so everything that we rely on, the sensory, the intellect, all of that, all of that goes dark. And yet we're going to experience God in his brilliance. So with the faith, it is an abundance. Uh, within its abundance, suppresses and overwhelms that of the intellect. For the intellect, by its own power, comprehends only natural knowledge. See, that's important. The intellect cannot comprehend supernatural knowledge. It can only comprehend natural knowledge. So what we learn basically through reason, through observation, experiment, experiments and all of that kind of stuff in science and different things, you know, the intellect can only learn by natural, but it can't, it can't comprehend the supernatural because it's beyond it. 
So it was uh, Jacques Maritain who wrote a wonderful book that I studied uh, in college uh, called The Degrees of Knowledge. He said, you start down here with biology, you know, and then you move up into like physics. And then you kind of move in that category of what they call metaphysics. And then you move up into what we call philosophy. Uh, that's, that's where reason is, is seeking out, trying to find truth. Uh, these lower ones are the sciences. They use the empirical method. So they're, they're, they're doing experiments. They're seeing, you know, improving things that can be seen and observed and verified. And then you get to philosophy, that's that seeking of those truths, those, those truths that kind of go outside of just empirical science. And then above that, you have theology. And there's a point where philosophy can only do so much because it depends on reason. Then theology, what does theology depend on? Well, theology depends on faith. And so you see, we go from reason to faith. And, and faith and reason, they can work together at times, but there's a certain point where reason says, I, can, I can't go any further. And faith has to take over. And then faith takes over in theology. And then what's above theology? I, I love when I learned this, mysticism. It is the highest and the greatest of the knowledges. And that is what ex is experienced in the dark night of the soul. So that is where we have to understand that, yeah, the intellect can only do so much, but then a certain point, faith takes over. And so St. John of the Cross is saying, instead of letting the intellect getting in the way, let's allow the intellect to be darkened so that faith can then soar. Faith can now take us to that place that God wants to. So Friar John gives a great example to explain this. If a person were blind and someone was trying to explain to this person the color white or yellow, the blind person would have no way of understanding or knowing what that color was, no matter how much someone tried to describe it to him. So faith comes through hearing the gospel, but describes things that we cannot see or know with our senses. Faith is an accent uh, to the soul, is an ascent to the soul to what enters through hearing. Faith blinds our natural light of reason and brings it to submission. Faith nullifies, it blinds the light of intellect. But if this light is not darkened, the knowledge of faith is lost. So he quotes Isaiah, if you do not believe, you will not understand. See the paradox there? That unless the intellect is darkened, then faith can't do its part. So the more we rely on our intellect to know and understand God, the less we rely on faith. In fact, I have a, a person in my parish and, and he's trying to say, well, can't, can't philosophy prove God? Can't philosophy somehow prove the existence of God? And I said, no, philosophy can't do that. If philosophy could do that, then we wouldn't need faith, right? See? So that's where St. John of the Cross is saying, that's why we want the intellect to be darkened, is so that faith can actually do its part. So in a kind of paradox, Friar John states, faith manifestly is a dark night for man, but in this very way, it gives him light. The more darkness it brings upon him, the more light it sheds. For by blinding, it illumines him. Since faith is a dark night, it illumines the soul that is darkness. This is a lot of words I just gave you. Um, but that's in your, in your, your handout. So you can uh, meditate on that. Um, and, but it, it's a wonderful paradox. So he says, faith is a dark night for the soul and the, and the soul is dark as well. So like a blind man, he must lean on dark faith, accept it for its guide and light and rest on nothing of what he understands, tastes, feels, or imagines. All these are darkness that will lead him astray. So Friar John gives another example. A person who's not entirely blind thinks he knows the best way to travel when in fact, because of his limited sight, he chooses the wrong way, not knowing that there's a better route to travel. So why would we rely on our intellects to, to take us 
to a place where it doesn't know the way. When faith knows the way, why are we relying on that? Why are we just allowing our intellects to try to lead the way when it, it can't find that way? It can only lead us part of the way. And then we get to that fork of the road. Now, which way do we go? You know, faith says this way. Our intellect, though, doesn't know which way to go. He says, for God's being cannot be grasped by the intellect, appetite, imagination, or any other sense, nor can it be known in this life. The most that could be felt and tasted of God in this life is infinitely distant from God and the pure possession of him. This is to get back to the understanding that God is so beyond what we can comprehend. It's, 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 it's more than night and day. It's, 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 it's just absolutely this, this, this kind of chasm between what we can know and try to understand and what God really is. Another paradox is only an unknowing that we can know God, the unknowable and unattainable. That's a, that's a great quote to take with you to prayer. It is only an unknowing that we can know God, the unknowable and unattainable. Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 39, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Friar John sees the scripture passages declaring that anyone who lives in darkness and blinds himself of all his natural lights will have supernatural vision. Anyone who wants to lean on some light of his own will become blind and be held back on the road leading to this union. So Friar John takes the time to remind us that God sustains every soul and exists in every soul substantially, even the most hardened of sinners. So there's no soul on this earth that does not have God present in this way. So it's, it's not like when we block out our senses and our intellect and all that, like somehow, you know, God's no longer there. There's two kinds of union with God. Essential, that's always there. Uh, that's what keeps us in existence. Did you know that if God stops thinking of us, we no longer exist? Like the whole universe. If he just stops thinking about it, it's gone. It's sustained in his existence by God always thinking of it. Isn't that wild? It's just, it's just amazing. And so our very existence uh, depends on God always thinking about us and being in us in that substantial way, uh, understood in the natural way. And then uh, there's the likeness where God's will and the souls are con in conformity. That's the supernatural presence of God in us, that our will is joined with his. And all souls, he's not in all souls to the same degree. So he's in some souls in a, a greater um, unity of love and in some in lesser. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So lack of conformity to God's will can be in individual acts as well as in habit. So act, habit, vice, act, habit, virtue. That comes from St. Thomas Aquinas. One act, one act repeated over and over again. If it's a good act, it becomes a virtue. If it's a bad act, it becomes a vice. And so lack of conformity to God's will, it can be in individual acts. So this one time we oppose God, or it could be in an ingrained habit where we're constantly opposing God. He says to reborn in the Holy Spirit during this life is to become most like God in purity. So once again, that Holy Spirit being central. An example Friar John gives is, we are a window that is dirty so the sunlight does not shine through us as well. If we were cleaned and polished, we would be illuminated by God's light in a perfect way. The sunlight doesn't change, but we must change. By wiping away all the smudges and smears, the glass becomes transformed by the sun. Uh, think especially of a stained glass window how it's transformed by that sun. So basically he says, not all souls attain an identical degree of union. This depends on what the Lord wishes to grant each one. 
Here we have a resemblance of the saint's vision of God in heaven. Some see more, others see less, but all see him and are happy owing to the satisfaction of their capacity. So a great way of understanding this is you have the ocean and you have a thimble. Now those that have like lived the life of sin their whole lives and have just used and abused others along the way and just haven't had one minute for God. And then at the last minute, they repent. And they tell God they're sorry and they actually really are. They go to heaven. And then you have uh, St. Mother Teresa who spends her whole life dedicated to God to showing God's love in all these, these extraordinary, wonderful ways, uh, who, who just literally exhausts herself in giving away that love. And she dies and she goes to heaven. Now we say, well, okay, both get the same reward, but they both don't get the same union with God. Mother Teresa, the grace, the, the, the experience of love that she will have in heaven will be like an ocean. And the grace that that person who came at the last, last minute will be like that in a thimble. Now, is the thimble full? It is. So that soul is content because that, that soul feels filled up. And Mother Teresa, <laughs> with her, you know, huge ocean, she feels filled up as well. This is one of the reasons, and St. Thomas Aquinas talks about that. Why should I live a virtuous life? Why, if I can just, you know, sin and just do all kinds of crazy things along the way and da-da-da, and then at the last minute, repent and go to heaven, like, why should I live a virtuous life if, if that's all it takes? And as we say, Thomas Aquinas, he gets into that. Basically, first of all, you don't know when your life's going to end. So you can't exactly predict that. And so you could end up making a big, huge mistake. But secondly, he says, you live a virtuous life because you get an increase of love in heaven. Your union with God is going to be more than those who have come late to the game, those who did not want to live a virtuous life. So every time that we live that virtue in our lives, imagine that we are increasing that, that union of love in heaven. And every time that we commit a sin, we're lessening it. So it should get us to help reflect on just the effects that our, our individual sins can have on that ultimate destination and to what degree that we want to be joined in that union with God. So a person who does not reach purity in the measure of his capacity, never achieves true peace and satisfaction for he will not have attained in his faculties, the nakedness and emptiness required for the simple union. Think of the two thieves on the cross, right? So the one, he says, you know, Jesus, remember me, this day when you go into paradise uh, or remember when you go into your kingdom and Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And the other one is going, what are you doing? Yes, you know, he's hanging here with us and he's not a, no, he's not, he's nobody, you know, they wouldn't be, you know, nailing him to a cross if he was innocent, blah, blah, blah. There's a great example of a person not reaching that capacity to ever achieve that true peace or satisfaction. And so um, does not have that emptiness required for that union, that simple union. Whereas the one thief, he, got, he joined that union. That was his transforming moment right there on the cross. The other one, he rejected that. Now we get to the method of leading the three faculties, intellect, memory, and will into the spiritual night. So intellect, memory, will, okay? These three kind of go together in relation to the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So this is really, uh, this was another one of those where I was like, wow. This never, never ceases to amaze me. 
and his insights on this. So fake. In the intellect, the darkness of faith, right? Hope. Hope is in the memory, okay? So. And faith is the intellect. And then charity is in the will. Sorry about the squeaky pen. <laughs> so, uh, so, of course, faith in the intellect, uh, you have to have that darkness of faith where the intellect, right, is, is basically subdued and faith is then relied upon. The same with memory. The memory, he says at some point, we have to subdue the memory so that hope can increase. And the reason he says this is because hope, hope hopes for something you don't yet have. What are we hoping for? We're hoping for that mystical union with God. We don't have that yet. And yet memory will kind of interfere and get in the way of that. So he says, we have to subdue the memory in order to increase the hope, the hope that drives us towards that mystical union with God. And then charity and the will, that is the nakedness and absence of every affection. So, and we'll go into that a little bit more later about, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't love anybody, that the only one we love is God, you know, like we talked about before, uh, that's a misnomer. Um, that is not what Friar John is saying at all. The fact that the will itself um, must be surrendered. And this we've heard, you've heard it in homilies, you've read it in different books, spiritual books. You know, our will has to be conformed to God the Father's. So of course, our will has to be subdued to the Father's. And if it is, then that, Love is increased dramatically. Why did Jesus show that incredible love in so many ways? The ultimate way he showed love, of course, is on that cross, is because he was joined to the Father's will. If we're joined to the Father's will, then we're going to live this love in such a deep and profound way that that love is going to overflow to the people around us. So that's why... St. Mother Teresa's dark night of the soul, that's, that's why she was able to give that love away and it's such a, 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 an amazing witness because her will was conformed to God the Father's. And when we do that, then we're really opening ourselves to that love of God in a way we haven't before. So these Virtues darken each of the faculties, and then because what they can know naturally is overpowered by what can only be known supernaturally. So, so what each of these things can know naturally is overpowered by then what can be known supernaturally. Okay? So, for example, the intellect can understand to some degree the basic formula for the Trinity, Three persons, one God, consubstantial of the same substance and yet distinct. So if any of you have a profound, profound, profound insight on the Trinity, uh, share it with Father Gary and I because uh, we have to always preach on Trinity Sunday. And every year we have to come up with a new way of teaching this, this, this same truth over and over, but have to keep doing it in a new way to keep all of you... Uh, <laughs> kind of uh, excited about the Trinity, right? Because the Trinity is, is such a profound thing. I mean, I, I told the kids in my parish, I said, I want you to go to your math teacher tomorrow and tell your math teacher one plus one plus one equals one. And when your math teacher goes, what? And you say, no, one plus one plus one equals one. What are you talking about? And then I said, then you can tell them about the Trinity and say, ah, three persons, one God. One plus one plus one equals one. 
we get that in that kind of abstract way. We, our faith allows us, though, to go beyond all of that. It allows us to experience the Trinity directly where words fail, but the reality of the Trinity is known firsthand. So you see how once again, you know, the, the intellect is it's limited in what it can understand. So we see that the soul is not united with God in this life through understanding or through enjoyment or through imagination or through any other sense, but only faith, hope, and charity according to the intellect, memory, and will can unite the soul with God in this life. So faith, hope, and charity, they, they are it. So Friar John tells us that uh, the, the emptiness of possessions in the memory, this is a kind of amnesia. We kind of forget uh, where the only thing that we want to possess is God. So our memory, you know, we have different things that we, we remember and that we, we possess in a certain way because of those memories of those things. And he says, when we have that, that forgetfulness, that clouding over that darkness, um, and we no longer want to possess those things, um, then we can have that, that union with God because that's no longer getting in the way. The only thing we want to possess is God. And charity produces the nakedness and emptiness of affection and joy in all that is not God. Um, so, our love of worldly things or people is transformed into a love for God alone. And it is in this love that we learn to love as God loves. For we cannot love anything more than God. That is what Jesus means when he says to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It always sounds like a harsh gospel, but when you understand it, in this, this understanding, it makes perfect sense of what Jesus is telling us. He's, he's basically saying, if we let anything get in the way of that complete and total love of God, then we really can't be his disciples. Because if we're to imitate him, he loved the Father completely and totally. And so returning to the faith is important to know that even though faith brings certitude in the intellect... It does not produce clarity, but only darkness. Okay, so, so, so basically, the intellect, it can have certitude, but it can't have clarity. Okay, there's a difference there. You know, it can kind of have a certitude that God exists. Um, I know God exists, but I can't really explain how. So, you know, it's one of those things where we think of those those proofs for God, right? That there has to be like a first cause of everything. Uh, and so what is the cause of the universe? How, how, does, how, does, how do we go from nothing to something? Well, there's no way you can go from nothing to something unless there's something else causing that. And that something else would be God. So that's where our intellects can say, okay, it, it, it seems... There's, there's a kind of a certain kind of certitude about knowing and understanding there has to be a first cause and that first cause would be God. But then it can't explain that any further. See, it can't get that clarity. It, it, it can't go any further into that. Okay. So once again, um, we see that Friar John says, that we should, um, let me see here. So I want to leave off uh, on a good spot here. Um, yeah, let's, let's stop there because that seems like a good stopping point. So, so have you kept with me so far? Doing okay? <laughs> see a few, a few hesitating. <laughs> uh, this is like, yeah, it's kind of a lot to, to kind of take in, but I, I think, you know, as, you, as we keep, he'll keep kind of going over this in different ways and, and giving some more explanations and examples to kind of reinforce this. And so after, after some time, uh, I think you'll start to, to, to see it and understand it even better. And so, and, you know, once you get it, 
you know, just call out, uh, I got it, I got it. My, my epiphany moment, uh, I finally figured out the ascent of Mount Carmel. Uh, so, so we uh, will then continue. Um, we're going to go more into the memory and the will. Uh, he's, he's covered the intellect quite a bit. Uh, and now he wants to start focusing on memory and will a lot more. And so we'll be looking at those a, a lot more in, in the next talk. <laughs>